Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Hey, listeners, welcome to this fall 2021 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words, part of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode 270, we visit with Jane Rosenthal, author of Del Rio, where the once thriving town set on the U.S.-Mexico border, for which the book is named, is now run down, a place the locals call Cartel Country. When the dismembered body of a migrant teen is found in one of Del Rio's surrounding citrus groves, local district attorney Callie McCall faces a career make-or-break case that takes her on a dangerous journey down the violent west coast of Mexico to a tropical paradise hiding a terrible secret and finally back home again. But her determination to find the killer pits her against the wealthiest, most politically connected, most ruthless farming family in California, her own. Deborah Thomas, author of the award-winning novel Loose, had this to say about the book, a page-turner. Its final chapters will keep you up until dawn. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time joining us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, LandisWade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. Speaking of writing, shameless plug here by the other sponsor of this podcast, which happens to be me. Uh, I have a novel coming out uh, in the spring of 2022. It's called Deadly Declarations. You can find out more about that at LandisWade.com. There's pre-order information there uh, for ebook and soon uh, print book as well. It's, uh, it's a novel that uh, explores a 250-year-old North Carolina mystery set in Charlotte, uh, which, if solved, uh, might change U.S. history, uh, possibly the first great American government conspiracy. John Adams called it one of the greatest curiosities and one of the deepest mysteries that ever occurred to him, and Thomas Jefferson called it spurious and an apocryphal gospel. I'm talking about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, which is the heart of this novel, uh, but it's modern day set in a uh, retirement community where the reality of getting older is a combination of fear, doubt, humor, and new life, and where these characters that uh, I've invented transport readers to the courtroom and then to the Virginia countryside to prove that age is just a number when searching for and finding the truth. Hope you'll check that out at LandisWay.com. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Jane, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, coming to us all the way from, uh, I guess, the uh, the West Coast, Santa Fe area, right? Well, not quite the West Coast. I lived in the West Coast, which is for many years, and I lived in on a ranch in the Central Valley for 15 years where this book was written. But now my husband and I have moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, Atlanta, Georgia, O'Keefe. 
Well, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, place. Uh, some call it setting today, and uh, I understand you've moved around quite a bit. At one time, I think you had a connection to Charlotte. Uh, so how did you go from Charlotte out to west uh, to where you are now? Okay. I was actually born in Charlotte and uh, went to school in Charlotte, Eastover, uh, AG, and Myers Park High School. And then I got a summer job uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My father, uh, Sanford Rosenthal, who had a business in Charlotte, was from Boston, where I met my husband-to-be. Uh, the man you just uh, met, and um, I was uh, waitressing in a in a bar uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and we met, fell in love, and got married. And his first job out of graduate school was in Colorado, and that was my first experience with the West. And I remember writing my mother and saying, "It's so strange out here. The trees are blue and the rocks are red." But I fell in love with the blue trees and the red rocks and, and all of the West. We ended up in Berkeley, California for a long time. Um, but, yeah, the, the West kind of affected me a lot. Yeah, well, your, your husband helped us quite a bit as we were working through some of the uh, technological issues here from, from podcasting from Charlotte, North Carolina to Santa Fe, New Mexico. So thanks to him for that. And uh, you said that, um, you know, you, you wanted to be – I think you said you kind of in the Sierra Mountains, you, you horses, cattle, fulfilling a lifelong dream to be a Western cowgirl. Yes, well, yes, I I did, and uh, so when my husband and I retired, we bought a ranch in the foothills, really, uh, of um, above many t towns like Del Rio, like the town I write about, and uh, we had a fifty-acre ranch with beautiful views and uh, and horses and cattle and uh uh it was quite a quite a lifestyle change our friends in berkeley called us dale evans and, and roy rogers as a joke but it really wasn't because we had to do all that yeah well the reason i'm laying this foundation here you know for where you've the different place you've lived and and where you are now in santa fe is we're going to be talking about uh this thing called place uh some call it setting on our patreon channel after we're done here today, and we're going to be talking about it today on this episode. And, and listeners, if you want to dive deeper with us, uh, the episode on Patreon is called "How Place, Character, and Voice Drive a Story." You can find us there at Patreon, p a t r e o n dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. We have over a hundred uh, interviews with authors there. It's just a place where you can go for a few dollars a month, and you can help support the podcast and get some really great content. But we're going to talk some more about place in this episode, and we're going to do it first of all by looking at the uh, at the book cover because you know. Jane, a lot of people pick up a book, they look at the book cover and they say, hey, do you want to read this book based on the cover? Let's talk about the cover. Um, tell us what we see. I think we see some kind of a landscape like you might see out your window. Definitely. In fact, uh, I loved this picture uh, that the very talented uh, uh, cover designer, Julie Metz, did because she really captured um, the Central Valley, the... Uh, the the ruggedness the aridness the uh, the heat uh, because this this is set in in the summer and and it you know it can get to 112 and 113 degrees um, and also some of the orange groves and uh, and I was just really thrilled with uh, with what she was able to convey kind of uh, rugged and a little shabby and uh, mm. and very hot. 
Yeah, and, and, and a big title on, on the front, you know, Dell in big letters, Rio in big letters, and it kind of evokes, I think that word kind of evokes a sense of place too, does it not? Well, yes, because um, the Central Valley is, well, California, uh, obviously was part of Mexico, uh, as was much of the West, and uh, it is now largely Spanish-speaking. These small towns are largely Spanish-speaking. You know, the names in California, Los Angeles or San Francisco or San Jose or anything gives you the sense that you're in a different part of America. Definitely. Yeah, and, and for people on the East Coast, you know, when I picked up this book, I thought, oh, this, this looks interesting, you know, because it's a part of the world that I'm not familiar with as much. And so I'm thinking it'd be a nice place to dive in. So what do I do? I turn to the back of the book, which is what most readers do. And I just want to talk about that for a second, because um, you start out on the back here. And some of this is kind of, and I want to unpack this a little bit with you, but it starts out big words, Del, Ray, Del Rio, California, a once thriving Central Valley farm town is now filled with rundown dollar stores. Uh, I can't even pronounce the La, La Torinas. Yeah. And, and then car, car, what's the next word? Carnicerias. And, <laughs> Carnicerias. Yes. Yeah. And shabby mini marts that sell one-way bus tickets straight to Tijuana on the Fletcher Amarillo line. And that's place. I mean, you're starting us off with this synopsis with place. And the very next words are, it's a place you drive through with windows up and doors locked, especially at night, a place the locals call cartel country. Now, I read that in the intro and went there again, but I'm seeing place right off the bat in your synopsis. Tell us why. Well, it. You know, this is this area from from basically San Jose, south of San Jose to north of Los Angeles, is known as the Forgotten California. It's not what you expect. Uh, it is incredibly, incredibly poor. In fact, you know, I I knew Appalachia. I knew I thought I knew poverty until I went to the Central Valley. I don't think I knew uh, poverty, and uh, so. The all of the, the the Central Valley was once once thriving when the the farms were smaller. Uh, there were lovely little trolleys that ran from um, each farm to the packing houses and so forth and so on. But as agribusiness moved in uh, and the conditions got worse for workers, uh, the poverty increased, and uh, that's what what really struck me. And how the little stores that were family businesses in these these charming, well, they, they could have been charming little towns were replaced by um, uh, businesses that basically deal in shabby goods and yeah. crummy food. Well, it sounds like, <laughs> sounds like a great place to set uh, a mystery of the type that, uh, that, yes. that you set here. Um, what, what is the predominant crop in that area? Oranges. Form. And uh, Orange. the thing that really struck me uh, driving through vast, I mean, if you've been to Florida, you've probably seen it, but the mountains are on your east and they're very high. And then it's just a sea of, of orange groves. And I remember driving through a very small town when I first got there, not unlike Del Rio, and seeing a very young farm worker, uh, uh, really a teenager. I thought this, this, person is too young to be doing this work. Uh, and he just was walking through the groves and then he kind of disappeared. And I realized that you could 
go into those orange groves and like never come out. I mean, you would just be swallowed up. And I said that to a woman I knew who grew up there and lived there. And she kind of waved her hand and she said, oh yeah, it happens all the time. People get murdered and their bodies get thrown in those groves all the time. And um, <laughs> like, oh yeah. And then I started reading the Fresno Bee and the Visalia Delta Times and stuff. And sure enough, every day it'd be like body found in an orange grove in Janesville, body found here, body found there. And that was in the back of my mind always uh, when I would drive through and see the workers maybe gathered under a kind of wiki up tent, you know, to try and get some shade and, and stuff. I would think about that kid a lot. Yeah. And, and so, you know, as the third paragraph of your synopsis, but when the dismembered body of a migrant teen is found in one of Del Rio's surrounding citrus groves, District Attorney Callie McCall faces a career make or break case. And we're starting to get into the plot, but hey, it's in a citrus grove. You must have taken that idea. And run with it. I did. I did. And uh, <laughs> and actually, the the, I, the first line of the book came to me when I was in the Wells Fargo Bank in a little town called Reedley, uh, which is like Del Rio. And it was a Saturday and farmers were getting paid. And there was a huge line. There's never a line there. Huge line of people. And I kind of was just waiting and waiting. And I realized I was the only English speaker in that whole bank. I mean, except for the tellers who were bilingual. And uh, I suddenly, uh, the, the first line of the book just came to me. Landis, just mm. bully made. And I bully, knew that I had to form. run run with it. Yeah, which I did. Yeah, and I think, you, I think you said you didn't know who was talking to you. You didn't have a name <laughs> for the character at the time, but there was a line there. And that turned into District Attorney Callie McCall. Um, she's trying to launch a political career, but she's also, you know, dealing, uh, with what district attorneys do in small towns. Tell us about Callie McCall and, uh, what you enjoyed about writing this character. Well, um, you know, I, I really admired a, a lot of the, the women that I met who were rancher girls, you know, who, uh, did all of the, the tough work, uh, um, dealing with, uh, crops and livestock, and also uh, the the crime issues. I mean, we had a huge problem with uh, illegal uh, cartel activity in in my neck of the woods. And I, I just, I loved their toughness. And I wanted to, and I love their toughness and their sense of humor, because you can't get through life without one, especially up there when you're dealing with the huge fires that California has and all the other things. Um, and I, I admired that and I wanted to capture that, uh, that spirit, uh, kind of a mm. toughness and, you know, that conceals a, you know, a kind of a, a loving heart. Yeah. Well, you've told us where this, uh, fictional town of Del Rio sits, uh, the central Valley halfway between San Francisco and Los awesome. Angeles. Uh, yeah, and 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 it's you know all the small towns along the way, um, but you take us to another place also in this novel. Um, you take us to what you described uh, as a dangerous journey down the violent west coast of Mexico, deep into a tropical paradise uh, where someone is hiding a terrible secret. Now, I, I enjoyed reading this book. I mean, I got into it. I got into the, but then we end up in Mexico, and I'm thinking to myself. Do they really have, you know, places like this that you describe uh, uh, in the book? Tell us about this, uh, you okay. know, without giving too much away. Tell us about where this other place is in, in the okay. book. 
Okay. Yes, they do, because I was in both of them. And uh, so, but what I saw um, uh, living where I did is that people went back and forth across that border legally or illegally, uh, constantly, uh, that it was, uh, you know, we had to admit that we were, we were very connected, uh, to each other, uh, in terms of language, uh, and, um, you know, I just, I felt a bit, because I lived in Mexico sometimes, I, I felt as though I, I was in Mexico, uh, uh, often at the, the grocery store that would have a, a place, a tortilleria in it. And, and, uh, it would, you know, you could buy hot tortillas and, um, uh, and, uh, you know, Mexican music and so forth and so on. Um, the, um, the, the luxury resort in the shabby little beach town are, are towns that, uh, David and our places, David and I, I visited. And a long time ago, we went to, uh, this, the place that I call Ventana Azul, obviously it wasn't quite as dramatic, but there were very glamorous Europeans. And I was just sort of so fascinated by them and, and their conversations. And I kind of wanted to capture that. And then later we went to um, uh, the town that I modeled San Benito in and had dinner at that restaurant, which actually was called the El Tropical. Later, I wanted to go back. It's on the Costa Alegre. It's called near the port of Manzanillo, and I, um, it had been closed that resort, that fancy resort, because of cartel activity. Yeah, you, you described it as kind of being in the treetops. You know, you can looking down over the yes. Pacific Ocean and all that kind of thing. And my wife and I, many many years ago on our mm -hmm. honeymoon, we went to Acapulco, and I don't know if it's still the same way it is today, but it felt like there were just there were two worlds. There were the tourists coming in these luxury resorts resorts and then there was a lot of poverty around is that is that still how it is in, in mexico in those, in those locations yeah well you know i uh, i i think that there is is less poverty actually uh mexico is really developing uh, a car industry and uh, a lot of industry um but yes there is still extreme extreme poverty uh and and you're pretty protected from it in these these gorgeous resorts or in the homes of the very wealthy i mean uh or in beautiful towns like the center of beautiful towns like san miguel or oaxaca um so uh, yes uh then there then there are the little beach towns that are sort of somewhere in between <laughs> you know uh kind of, um, uh, I don't know where people who, you know, you know, surfers and young kids and people. Yeah. Go. Where, 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 uh, the, the main character in Shawshank Redemption escaped at the end of the movie, right? He went, <laughs> right. He went, exactly. He went, he went, <laughs> exactly. went down there to build his boat on the, on the Pacific ocean. Uh, well, well yes, yeah. we, uh, we, we, we have, uh, authors do, uh, readings on the show to give voice to the written words. You're going to start at a good place. You're going to start, at the beginning of the book, so I don't know that we need uh, any introduction. Um, uh, let's let's do this uh, and 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 start from the beginning and uh, hear okay. a little bit uh, from Del Rio. Chapter one, Callie. Fletcher wanted me to meet him at the Starlight Lounge, an old roadhouse set on a bluff above the San Joaquin River, a few miles south of town. I knew the place, knew as well as any rancher girl or campesina, for that matter that the starlight was as close to big city glamour as we'd ever get down here in the dusty Central Valley. At night, 
When the bar's revolving neon star scattered light over the tumbleweed and drooping locust, you could forget for a while where you were. Forget the bad air and the heat, the crummy trailer parks lined up at the edges of the fields. Back in the broad daylight, though, under the brutal sun, when Fletcher said we needed to talk, the place would have lost its magic, would have become once again just a squat, stucco building at the dead end of Del Rio Avenue. The booths and bar stools filled with pesticide reps anxious to make a sale, or ag inspectors reaching under the table for a payoff just to look the other way. The mood inside would have turned as grim and back to business as the daytime patrons. I'd been standing in line at the floor de Morelia Bakery on a sweltering August morning, waiting for a café con leche and a pan dulce. When my phone chimed and a quick look told me it was a Sacramento prefix, one I didn't recognize. It could have been anybody up at the Capitol, a robocall or a solicitor, so I let the call go to voicemail. You have reached the office of District Attorney Callie McCall, said everything that needed to be said. I was Del Rio's boss lady now. You'd be amazed how many people change their minds and hang up when they hear that. A second look at my phone and the number jogged my memory. The call was from State Senator Jim Fletcher, and he was not one to hang up without leaving a message. Just as well I hadn't taken his call, it gave me some time to think. Not that there was much to consider, really. If I ignored him, I'd never hear the end of it from every judge around. Senator Fletcher, my brother-in-law, got his way, always. There'd be hell to pay if he didn't. Asoilo, did you hear? Juan Barajas, the floor's proprietor, interrupted my train of thought and handed me my to-go bag. The gypsies are back. They've been bothering everybody over at the Valero station. I dropped my phone in my purse. Oh, yeah? I'd worry about Fletcher later. The gypsies were a more pressing issue, traveling up and down the middle of California, begging, turning tricks at the gas stations and truck stops, stealing. The last thing Del Rio needed was one more set of problems, but it looked like we had them. The gypsies, they're over in Simonian's Almond Grove, the one that's half dead, Juan continued. Anybody get in touch with old man Simonian, I asked. Can't. Marianne Lopez aimed the tongs she was using to pull sweet rolls from the shelves in my direction. He's got old timers. His kids put him in a facility. Yeah, we got a good sense there, Jane, from uh, the opening as to where this is taking place and a little bit about uh, a little bit about Cal. You also mentioned the almond groves. I remembered seeing a lot of those when we went out to Yosemite a couple of years ago. Just vast. Uh, like you said, you wouldn't know if somebody was out there uh, and left for dead because they just go on and on uh, and on. Um, this is, you know, um, a part of the country that not many people are familiar with. Uh, and you bring it to life uh, in the book here. But you also do it in the context of a murder mystery. You could have written any kind of book, obviously, you wanted to write in terms of a novel. What was it that drew you to you know, write a mystery, to write one that, uh, you know, had these secrets uh, built into it. Okay. Uh, I uh, am a, a secret uh, crime fiction junkie. I mean, I have loved crime fiction, and it was always my guilty pleasure. And I, uh, 
I don't know whether, you know, for some years in my 20s when I was studying poetry at San Francisco State, I was too snobby, even though, you know, on the weekend I would be, you know, plotzed on the sofa reading Raymond Chandler and stuff happily. So finally, when I, um, and then I taught for years and and uh, my I did the literary magazine with the kids and stuff and the kids were getting published and I thought, you know, I might be able to do this. And I, I thought, well, th- there's no reason now at your age, Jane, to just not do what you want to do and which is write crime fiction. And I think I, I like the arc that goes from injustice to justice. And and there are there are thrillers that don't do that. And there's noir that doesn't do that. It's more cynical than that. But for me, um, I think I turned to crime fiction because I wanted some kind of justice in the world. That's, that's a great, uh, great approach to that. Um, and, and in this case, you know, you deal with some difficult themes, uh, in, in the book, um, you know, one of which is, child trafficking and and I'm wondering if this is something that uh is you know actually in the headlines in your part of the world and and what kind of serious problem this is. Yes, it is. Um Fresno is kind of ground zero for uh human trafficking. And we usually think of it as uh, sex trafficking, but there is a lot of labor trafficking that goes on. A lot. And uh, that actually is is just as horrible and not as as recognized. I mean, you would hear about people who had been trafficked, and then you, they have no, you know, they have no rights, no recourses, no nothing, and uh, they, uh, you know, at the end of whenever they're useful, they get killed and thrown in the mm-hmm. orange groves or, or wherever. And once you became sensitized to it by living there long enough, um, you could kind of spot. Uh, uh, abandoned houses where you saw suddenly uh, during the growing season uh, people uh, hanging their clothes out on a line, you know, um, and uh, things like that. You would you would recognize that people were squatting or installing squatters um, into mm. into places. Yeah, and so you know, there's a lot of truth that comes out in fiction, and you've done. Uh, a lot of that, uh, both in the setting and here, some of the issues you deal with. But uh, like you, like you said, and what we're going to talk about on our Patreon channel, um, you know, place, character, and voice driving a story. Uh, one of the things that helps uh, when we talk about characters, at least as far as the protagonist is concerned, is to have some really strong antagonist <laughs> on the other side that the character, the main character, has to deal with. Talk, talk a little bit about the antagonist in this story. What Callie McCall is up against? Well, uh, she's she's up against a uh, huge, um, uh, wealthy um, uh, agricultural interests, uh, and um, you know, and and it's uh, and most of them are 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 benign. I mean, uh, you know, but of course, I would not have a, a crime fiction if I didn't make the villain. A, a, a real villain. So I had to, but there, you know, from his point of view, he feels completely and absolutely entitled uh, to, um, to whatever he wants. Uh, and it's almost like what I imagine back in the day was a plantation mentality. 
you know, that there were a whole, there was a whole group of people that were less than or, or whatever, uh, and whose feelings and concerns didn't matter. And, and he could take what he wanted or do what he wanted. And that that's the way the world had been for generations. And, and, uh, he saw no reason to change. And so, uh, uh, he was, um, and, and, because agriculture is such a huge industry in, in California, um, he acquired a, a huge amount of political power uh, to uh, to cover up or uh, uh, do do what whatever he chose to do. And uh, yeah, so she's Callie got her, had to she's got her hands full. <laughs> yeah, she's got her hands full there. Uh, let's do a little bit of writing life discussion here for a second. One of the things I want yeah. to ask you about is a, one of the story storytelling techniques that you use because you use uh, uh, two points of view. You use a first person point of view and a third person point of view. And that's not often done uh, in books, but it, but it is sometimes done. And I'm just curious about how that process developed and how it worked for you. Well, both of them sort of arrived, you know, in, in my consciousness uh, with, with their voices intact. And uh, Callie was the, you know, the main protagonist, uh, and, and her experience was more immediate. Uh, Nathan is, is more removed from life at this point in his life anyway, because of grief and because of, of, of whatever. But what I really liked about having the two characters was the, what we call dramatic irony that Callie knows some things, Nathan knows some things. Consequently, the reader knows both those things, but, no one knows everything, including the reader at that point. Mm. And it made it more interactive uh, and uh, for the reader, I felt, uh, to be a part of the struggle to find out what the truth was and what was going on. Yeah, that's a good point because, and there are a lot of, there are mysteries that are told in first person uh, only. And that means that, you know, you're looking at the world through the eyes of of the main character and they only can see some things. And so you're finding out what's happening when the main character is finding out what's happening, but with a third person point of view, you're able to tell the reader some things perhaps that the, uh, that the main character doesn't know, which is kind of fun too, because it's like, Hey, don't go down those steps. <laughs> you know, right. right. You, you, don't, don't, don't go there. You know, it's going to turn out bad for you. Uh, yeah. I was look, just, look, you, <laughs> go ahead. I was just watching mayor of East town, which is such, such great storytelling. And I had the same feeling like, don't go in that barn, you know, <laughs> no. <laughs> exactly. It's, and, and that's great because it pulls the reader into the story and they, they're a part of it. Um, in, in terms of your writing process, you, I think you just told me your office looks out over this Georgia O'Keeffe landscape around you. How important is your writing space to you and getting done what you do? Okay. Ironically, uh, when I lived on my ranch, I had a beautiful picture window with views of the Sierras and Mineral <laughs> Kings and everything. Did I ever look at them? No, I did not. Um, yeah. because, and so what I actually, what I do, what I have to do, because I have to close the curtains behind me because of the glare on the computer. I, I do have a lovely, what we call a portal here. It's a porch uh, with a fountain and stuff. And then those hills that everyone is familiar with from Georgia O'Keeffe, the pinion stuttered, studied the pinion studded kind of adobe colored hills. So um, my writing space, I, I, so I realized that um, uh, honestly, uh, as long as it's quiet, um, I, uh, I, you know, it, it has to be quiet. I, I can't write with music or, or anything. And uh, I, I'm pretty much in my own world. 
to tell you the truth, mm. uh, in it, as long as it's, it's quiet and, and darker than now you, light. <laughs> you went and you, you, yeah, you studied creative writing at San Francisco State University. Yeah. Uh, was that a later in life decision? Is that something you did then? Or is it something you came back to after you studied earlier? Uh, no, it was, uh, it was after, after I met my husband, I, I, I was going to go, um, to college. Um, uh, and, uh, but I was a child bride. <laughs> so I thought my father was going to kill me, you know, um, when I called <laughs> from the phone booth at the bar to say I was getting married, you know, but then he, they found out he was a PhD astrophysicist from Harvard. So as far as my father, who was old school, was concerned, mission accomplished, <laughs> you know, why did I need to go to college? But when uh, when we did go to California, I knew that I wanted to study at San Francisco State because at that point, it was one of the few um, um, creative writing programs in the country, you know, Iowa. Now, now they're all over, you know, like everywhere. Um, right. And it was it was a great it was a great experience. Uh, I can't recommend studying poetry enough, you know, in terms of getting the rhythm of language in your in your head uh, for writing anything. Mm -hmm. So one last question here in the writing life. Now that you've written this novel, uh, you, you've been studying writing for a while. I know that because you shared some of your thoughts with me about writing. Is there one thing that you've learned, uh, Jane, so th th for the next novel that, that you're going to undertake that, uh, you, you know, that, that you're going to try to take to heart when you take on this thing called novel writing? Yes. Uh, and I wish I had known this early on uh, it, because, um, the, that's the importance of character. And I know we're going to talk about that later. Um, but now what I do, and I can credit one of my teachers, David Corbett, with this, is before I begin a story, uh, and before the one I'm working on now, which is actually set in 1941 in a, in a place on the North-South Carolina border, um, is I really have uh, detailed scenes written uh, from my character's points of view, where I I show them grappling with with something, some inner shame, some outer whatever, some, or I show them moving. In the case of my character, Solly, who I'm writing about now, I, I show him dancing at a club um, to east of the sun, west of the moon. Um, and um, so I, I really I need to see how my character moves what uh, what he's trying to avoid, what he's trying to attain, but not not in the terms of motivation, just a kind of more internal uh, thing about uh, what really internally motivates them. And I wish mm -hmm. I had known. And, and, and also when you have a plot problem, you probably have a character problem and you need to go back uh, and see what your, your character really needs, wants, or is trying to avoid uh, at that point and go from there. Does that make sense, Landis? Yeah. Well, it, it makes good sense to me because, uh, I, you know, of course, I've been interviewing close to 300 authors now and and I'm learning more, you know, each day when I talk to authors. And one of the things that uh, is coming through a lot is this idea that, uh, you know, character has uh, a lot about driving the story much more than plot because people are more interested, you know, in connecting with somebody in a book and seeing how they deal with circumstances. Um, and you can get by a lot better from what I understand with a really good character. 
uh, than you can with a really good plot and a really bad character <laughs> because sometimes <laughs> they don't care unless they like the character, right? So, right. so what you're saying is find find a character that you like because if the writer doesn't like the character, why is the reader going to like like the character? Right. right. And and there has to be something really, you know, something that the reader can feel that the character's grappling with, and the reader sort of has to root for the the character to achieve that internal victory, not just the external victory. Yeah. Great point. All right. Well, uh, Jane, we've been talking uh, listeners uh, with uh, Jane uh, Rosenthal of one time in Charlotte, but now she's on the West coast author of Del Rio, a novel. Uh, it's really good. I enjoyed it. Uh, quick read. You can, uh, Pick it up wherever books are sold. But also you can get information on our website uh, at charlotterspodcast.com and the show notes for Jane, uh, all her contact information, pictures, photos, all that good stuff. So check it out. Jane, hey, listen, I want to thank you for coming across the airwaves all the way from the West Coast to be on Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Well, thank you. It's nice to have a little touch of my hometown and hear your accent. <laughs> Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.